If you guys would turn uh, to Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through, or 8 through 11. Um, last time I was here, about a month ago or so, I preached uh, verses 1 through 7. I figured I would just pick up where we last left off. Um, so that'll be uh, in verse 8. It says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, we have such a grand privilege this morning um, of being able to uh, get into uh, the head of one of the apostles in their, in their private prayer life. I know a lot of us often sometimes wonder what other people say about us uh, behind their backs, right, or when we're not around. And, and what we see here is the Apostle Paul, uh, not only what he says, but his deepest thoughts, his prayers for the Philippian church. And, and we uh, learn earlier in the chapter that all Christians are born again saints, so this applies to us. So all the, the, the prayers that he alluded to in the beginning of Philippians chapter 1, you know, he said that he thanks God in all his remembrance of prayer. And he goes into all the prayers of thankfulness and joy that he has for the Philippian church uh, to this point in chapter 1. And we get an inside look at what he actually specifically prays for, the content of those prayers that the Apostle Paul has for the Christian church, namely at Philippi, and what the most preeminent, dominant thing is. You know, we're talking here about Christian sanctification. You know, it's a big word for, for growing in Christ, growing in holiness, and becoming a mature believer. And what's interesting about the church at Philippi, of all the letters that Paul wrote, the letter to the Philippians is unique in that it does not spend the majority of its time in rebuke or exhortation to uh, the people he's writing to. You know, if you think about his letter to both letters, he writes to the Corinthians, um, to the Ephesians, to, to basically everyone else that Paul writes to, he spends a lot of his time correcting their behavior and saying, stop doing this, start doing this. But he doesn't do that very much throughout the, his letter to the Philippians. The Philippians are presented as what it looks like to be a mature believer in Christ. So um, there's a lot of doctrine and a lot of encouragement. There's a ground laid for, for their salvation and then how to live out of that isn't expressed in, hey, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, because they seem to have a type of spiritual maturity, and that's what this letter presents to us, is what does it look like to be a mature Christian? And to get to Christian maturity, what is the one act of obedience, the one predominant thing that Paul prays for for them to grow in Christ-likeness. What does it look like? Well, in verse 8, before he gets into his prayers and what he wants them to be more like, he um, first stresses uh, his own affection for them. 
You know, um, before he goes into any instructions on personal holiness or, or sanctification, anything like that, he first lays a foundation of a deep-rooted love that he already has to these people before he tells them how to live. Paul says that he's yearning or, or straining even, almost as if he's in pain out of his desire to want to be with these Philippians. And the word that Paul uses for affection here, it uh, can be literally translated meaning like intestines or guts. It's a, it's a uh, phrase trying to invoke images of the depth, uh, the deep inside within the depths of his being that he longs and he loves these Philippians. He calls this, though, this is what makes it even more profound. If it wasn't enough for him to say that he yearns for them, that he strains for them, if it wasn't enough to say that he, he yearns for them with the affection that's from the deepest part of his being, he says that it's the affection of Christ Jesus itself. He calls this the love of Christ, the affection of Christ, which gives us the only type of foundation any of us can have to grow into any sort of holiness. Whatever obedience that we can have for Jesus Christ has to be built on first his love for us if it's going to grow into anything that's real spiritually. And that's what we see Paul start with here. It's the affection of Jesus Christ before he goes into trying to modify any type of behavior or encourage them to change their ways. In the same way, an expectation for growth and holiness is only placed upon God's people after they've already first experienced the love of God. Our sanctification or our growing in Christ's likeness, our becoming more like Jesus Christ and, and growing in maturity is not a means to get God to love us. It is a result of God first having loved us already. You know, and we see this throughout all the Bible, right? And in all the apostles' letters, you see a great time um, dealt in the first few chapters of doctrine, of God's love, salvation, how we do not deserve the grace of God, the love of God, yet he freely gives it to us through faith and belief. And then Paul typically goes on the back half of his books saying, okay, in light of that, this is how we live now. Okay, in light of knowing that God first loved us, let's do this. I mean, this is throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament, we see this, right? We see the Israelites. When did the Ten Commandments ever come? When did the Ten Commandments? Well, it was after the Exodus. They were enslaved and in bondage to a tyrannical force, the Egyptians, right, who were, who were keeping them down and, and treating them less than humane, and God delivered them, not by anything they did, any righteousness that the Israelites had in Egypt, but simply because they had the Passover lamb's blood over their doorways, right? So when the angel of death came through, they were passed over, they were given grace, they did not receive wrath, and because they were covered by the blood, they were taken out of their enslavement, out of their bondage, and given a free grace they did not deserve. And in the same way, all of us as Christians, as people born again by the blood of Christ, 
are given a Passover lamb and the lamb Jesus Christ whose blood covers all of our sins, not because of anything that we've done, not because of anything that we deserve, but because simply the belief in that his blood actually works, right? That we will be passed over. And it's not until then, not until that God saves them out of Egypt, brings them out, and the exodus is complete, that he then gives them the Ten Commandments. Notice that. He didn't give them the Ten Commandments. He didn't give them the law and said, okay, guys, if you obey this, if you do this, 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 and this, then you can earn my love, then you can earn my favor, and maybe have a shot at me loving you back. No, that's not what we see. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 actually says, We love him only because he first loved us. So before Paul gets into his prayers and his prayers, his insight to, to what he's been praying about is really a means for him to tell them where he wishes they would change in some ways. They're spiritually mature more than other churches at the time, but he still would like to see something more elevated in their obedience to Christ. But before he goes into any of that, he first lays down a foundation of deep affection first, an affection of Christ Jesus. And then if we continue here in verse nine, we actually get insight. We actually get to see that what that prayer really was says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Throughout the first chapter, Paul had been referring to how he prays for them. You know, he said, in all remembrance, every single time he thought of the Philippians, he was involved in deep prayer for them, out of his love and thankfulness and joy for them. But now we finally get to see what it was that he was praying for them what it was that he wished they would grow in, obedience, holiness. What does it mean to be a mature Christian? What does it look like? What, what does a mature Christian do? What do they grow in? And we see that he holds the utmost importance for the Philippians' growth in Christ being that their love may abound more and more. Now, when you think of Christian holiness, Christian maturity, when you think of what it means to grow in obedience and become more spiritual, do you first think of love? Is that, is that the first thing that comes to your mind? Maybe it is for some of you. Uh, growing up in kind of the, the Christian tradition that I came from, that's not what really came to my mind. When I thought of Christian holiness, when I thought of Christian obedience, when I thought of how, what it means to be holier and sanctified, um, I thought of things like church attendance, right? Um, modesty, abstaining from profane language, maybe, sexual purity, making sure I read my Bible, right? Those are what spiritual Christians do. Maybe spiritual gifts that I was walking in, right? Um, those are the things that I thought were signs of somebody who's a mature believer, that's what it meant to be obedient. And of course, love is in there because, you know, we're supposed to love people. Even the world agrees that love is a good thing, right? Love wins, right? But that's not what comes to my mind naturally when I think of 
religious obedience, right? But Paul doesn't mention any of that. When he's laying a foundation of Christian obedience, it's on love and it lifts up, it's on Christ's love for us and it lifts up our love for him and others as the most important thing for us to abound more and more in. These are Christians who are more spiritually mature than other Christians he's writing to. And he's saying that he wished they would just get back to loving people more and more. And, you know, this shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? You know, um, we see that uh, Jesus even himself said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Um, 1 John 4, 8 says, Anyone who does not love does not even know God because God is love. If we are Christians, right, then we are following Christ and and sanctification or our personal growth in holiness and obedience after we're saved, after we accept Jesus as our Savior, if that means coming more into Christ-likeness, looking more like Him, if, if Christ is love Himself, then that means that we would be abounding more and more in love and therefore abounding more and more in what it means to look like Christ. And then when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? What's the greatest commandment? You know, they had the Ten Commandments, and then the Jews uh, went therefore on after that and added hundreds of more. And the Pharisees prided themselves in how much they could religiously follow outward laws, outward obedience to puff themselves up, to pride themselves up. And they had all these commandments and they asked Jesus, which one's the greatest? If you're such a great rabbi, if you're such a great teacher, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is the like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So he's saying, you guys have all these laws. You guys have all this thing, all those acts of obedience. You can apply modern day to, to the type of stuff that I mentioned before, right? So the, the, the Christian things you're supposed to do, going to church, reading your Bible, not saying bad words, not watching certain TV shows, um, remaining pure sexually, or, or all the things that you can think of in your mind that means outward expressions of what it means to be holy. Jesus says, all of the law, all acts of obedience must be built on love. Love, love for God and love for your neighbor, for your fellow man. Now, this, some people get this confused because you think, oh, all you got to do is love people. Uh, you get a pass. You don't have to do anything else. You're lowering the bar of what it means to follow Christ. You're lowering the bar of what it means to grow in holiness, to grow in obedience. But this actually raises the bar to a whole other level because now it doesn't just, uh, you don't just have to consider how well you're following Christ outwardly, but you also have to consider the motivations for why you're doing those things. Are you doing them because you're motivated by love? So now, all of those things mentioned before 
I'm doing them because I love God. I love God, so I want to be a good witness. So I don't want to use certain language that's going to make the world think that I'm just like them and God is no different and can't make any difference in their life. So I love God and I love the witness that I'm giving of him, so I'm going to behave in this way. I'm not going to be immoral and cheat against my fellow man and, and try to get one up on him because I love people now, right? All of the obedience externally that we can think of must be built on the foundation of love. You know, all outward sanctification is motiva- motivated by love. And even 1 Corinthians 13.2 says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but if I have not love... I am nothing. If you move mountains, if you speak prophecy, if you do all the good Christian obedient things you can think of, but they're motivated by, oh, fear of God, wanting to earn his favor, or making myself look good in the sight of other people, pride, and they're not motivated by love for God because he's loved me and love for others because they're made in his image and they deserve that type of love and, and I want to count myself as least of these for them. If it's not motivated by love, then all of that stuff is nothing. But what does that love look like? If growing in Christian maturity means abounding more and more in love, then what does love look like? Because no one is against the idea of love, right? You can find anybody in the world from, a, from an atheist, a, a Muslim, to agnostic, to a Christian, to, to a, a devout Catholic. Everybody's going to say that, yeah, love is a good thing. We should all you know, love more. Abounding more and more in love is a good thing. So why does Paul even mention it? Shouldn't it just be a given that, yeah, you should abound more love like anybody else does, right? Well, he doesn't leave it ambiguous. He goes on to define this love, genuine Christian love, apart from worldly love. And he, he talks about this Christian love being informed by two things that make it distinct from the world's idea of love. The first is knowledge and all discernment. So he say, it is my prayer that your love may bound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. First off, genuine Christian love is a knowing love. It's a love according to a knowledge, something that you know. Truth and spirit, spirit and truth are never separated in scripture, though we want to so bad our flesh wants to separate feelings and and knowledge, spirit and truth, but they're not separated in Scripture at any point, and they shouldn't be in the heart of the Christian either, the mature Christian, the maturing Christian, anyway. A correct understanding, a correct knowledge of God and man is necessary if we're going to have any shot at actually loving God and man. You have to know someone in order to love them. You have to know them correctly. You know, it's a popular saying now, especially uh, among young Christians, guys um, my age, who will say, you know, I do not care about theology. Theology, doctrine, all it does is divide, makes people argue. 
Um, all I care is about loving Jesus and, um, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I don't really get caught up in, in, in knowledge and theology and um, in doctrine at all. I, I just love Jesus. Well, an analogy that I heard one time that really stuck with me, and I think that just um, shows this truth so much better than any way I can think of it, is that's like if someone were to, uh, if a man were to be talking to his wife and just saying, you know, baby, I love those, those blue eyes of yours, that beautiful blonde hair, you're so gorgeous, you're just as beautiful as the day I first saw you. Now that sounds really good, right? But if his wife had brown hair and brown eyes, then that conversation would not go well with him, right? So we must love according to knowledge. You say you love Jesus, but who is Jesus? What do you know about Jesus? You can't love Jesus until you know, and you can't love man until you know about him. But if you know and you recognize that God is holy and transcendent, yet so close and lovingly near, that he is completely just, yet oh so kind, then you can finally understand what it means to love him and worship and praise and adoration for who he is. And then if you have a correct knowledge, a correct understanding of your fellow man, of mankind, of your neighbor, then you know that he's made in the image of God. She's made in the image of God. So anything that I would do against them is not just attacking them, but it's attacking God itself. Correct knowledge leads to a correct love. And not only that, if you recognize not just the, the value of your neighbor as being made in the image of God, but if you also recognize the fallen, sinful nature of those around you, then you lose expectations. You, you stop holding people's sin against them. You stop being surprised and appalled and hurt so bad when people sin against you and you start becoming more forgiving because you know that we're all fallen. Then even more of that, if you love according to knowledge, then you have knowledge of your own sinfulness. And because God has so graciously forgiven your trespasses, then you can love your neighbor by forgiving theirs against you, right? Real love is not just a fluffy word thrown around, but is a real, genuine love according to knowledge. Knowledge of God and knowledge of man. But he doesn't stop there either. He doesn't stop there. He says that, that he wishes they would abound more. He prays that they abound in love more and more according to knowledge and all discernment. Genuine Christian love is an all-discerning love. Now, this is probably the biggest difference between how the world looks at love and how, how the Christian sees love, true love. See, to love is to recognize a motivation to help or be there for somebody, right? To, to assist. That, that, that's being a loving person, to be sympathetic, to be empathetic towards, to show love outwardly, to help. But discernment is being able to recognize what their need for help really is. See, there's two ditches that Christianity typically, or Christians, typically fall into when it comes to loving people properly. They fall into Pharisaism, legalism, 
self-righteousness, and they, they become judgmental against people, um, and they really lack love altogether, any semblance of love. And, and it's all about the wrath, wrath, wrath of God, which has its place. But there's no love, no forgiveness, no turning the other cheek to the world. But then on the other side of that, there's a reaction to that, that lack of love, that says, no, we must embrace the world's idea of love. We must go from that one extreme to the other extreme. And we must accept everything is right and true, even if it goes against God and what he says. Because if we were to say anything else, then that, that might hurt somebody's feelings. That might be offensive to them. That might be hard to hear. If you say that somebody's a sinner, man, that, then you're being rude. You're being offensive. If, if you say that some type of lifestyle is not according to God's way and his favor and, and, and how he designed us, then now you're being offensive to that person. And that's not loving at all. That's what the world says. To, to do anything that would hurt somebody's feelings temporarily or to challenge them in any way or to question their truth as if truth is a subjective thing. Just by the way, if truth is subjective, then truth is not real. If someone says that, that everyone has their own truth and that um, there's no such thing as real objective truth, someone ever presents that to you. I've heard that probably dozens of times. I, I used to do college campus ministry and, and talk to college students, and that, that's postmodernism. They'll say, well, well, everyone can live their own truth because there's no way you can know real truth. All truth is relative. If someone says there's no such thing as truth, and you ask them, well, is that true? Right? It's a self-defeating statement. There has to be a standard of truth, and that standard of truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And what, what's important to get about that is that if he really is the truth, then to live in a way that is not according to his will is destructive to ourselves. And to, to not want to tell people and bring them out of that destruction in fear of hurting their feelings temporarily instead of bringing them to the freedom that will give them everlasting love and satisfaction eternally is not to love them, but that's to hate them. That's like if, if a doctor um, brought in a patient and they just got all their radiology done, and he's looking at the, their, um, their papers, and, and he sees their x-rays, he sees their CT scans, their MRIs, what have you, whatever it is, and he sees that they have a malignant tumor in their brain. And he brings the patient in their office, and he looks at them, and he contemplates with himself, man, it would really ruin their day today if I told them that they had cancer. That would really make them sad. That would be an unloving thing for me to do. And then they throw it away and then tell the patient that there's nothing wrong with them, that they can go about their business. That doctor would be kicked out of his practice. He would be unloving. He would be hateful. In the same way we overcorrect from this lack of love, this judgmentalism, to this fake love that the world says that really doesn't care about the good will of that person at all. It only really cares about 
pleasing them in the moment as to not cause any tension. Real love hurts. You know, a man sharpens another man's countenance the way iron sharpens iron is what the proverb says. And sometimes that can, that can, that causes friction, rubbing, sparks to fly, but at the end, both of you are sharper because of it. And real genuine Christian love is a discerning love, a love that actually cares for the long term, that sees the need. The need for them in love is not to feel safe and good in the moment, but it's to save them that the fire they're headed to, because you know you've been saved out of that as well. It's a balance. So we see that Christian sanctification, this growing in holiness after we come to Christ, this, this growing in spiritual maturity, it's presented as love being the fruit growing from the gardens of our new, saved, regenerated hearts as a result of God first loving us. And this love's vine is being guided, upheld, supported, and placed on stakes proper to knowledge and discernment. So where knowledge and discernment fall, the true essence of love itself falls with it. But let's go on to verse 10. It says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That approve what, excellence, uh, what is excellent uh, evokes images of not only knowing the right way to love people, but actually following through. Uh, practical obedience means not just to have correct knowledge about how to love someone, but actually putting it into practice. And it says, and the result of that is to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The ends this love is working towards is being pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is a growing in holiness that every true believer experiences as a result of their salvation. Now, pure and blameless, does this mean Christian perfectionism? Does this mean that we must be completely pure and blameless within ourselves in order to make it to heaven, to, to earn God's favor? Now, there are Christian sects that believe that kind of belief, Christian perfection, complete sanctification here in this life now. Is that what this is saying? Well, you see, to, to understand this, we've got to understand about the, the three ways in which salvation is presented in the Bible. It's presented in a past tense, a current tense, and a future tense. The first way is justification. This is when you first place your trust in Christ and you are legally justified before the Father and nobody can do anything about that. Where your sin is placed on the cross and you are given Christ's righteousness and that nobody can pluck you out of Christ's hands once you're placed in there. That's justified. That's past tense. That is, I've been saved. And the future tense is one day we will be glorified will be saved completely from the presence of sin altogether and will be resurrected in new glorious bodies when Christ comes back to get us and will be completely, perfectly sinless. But between those times, between when we first get saved and then one day when we will ultimately be saved from the sinful body, we have this area in life called life. Sanctification. We don't get sucked up into heaven as soon as we accept Christ, right? but we grow in sanctification. 
We grow in holiness. We know that this can't mean a complete perfection. With that, that glorification, to, to, to have that now in this life would be that that's not for the future, but that you can become holy and perfect and blameless right now. Um, that would mean that, that true Christians don't sin at all and that we can't stumble, or at least in order to earn our salvation in the end, that there's no amount of imperfection that can be left outward externally but this can't mean what it uh that can't be what he's meaning here because paul as well as all the other biblical authors uh, uh recognize a man's sinfulness even after salvation you know in first timothy uh 1 paul says the saying is trustworthy deserving of full acceptance that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am foremost or some translations say of whom i am the chief of sinners 1 John 1, 8, probably the hardest book in the Bible against sinful living, even says itself, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then even in this letter, um, in chapter 3 of Philippians, in verse 12, Paul says, it's not that I already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, right? So that's what the pure and blameless Christian heart, that the result of the love that's growing, this love according to correct knowledge of God and man and to the correct application of it, the discernment, the correct need, needing, meeting people uh, where they are and fulfilling their need of love and discernment gives birth to this pure and blamelessness and pressing on towards perfection. It is a reorientation of the heart. You know, when you come to Christ, you put your faith and trust in him and you repent of your sins, right? That repentance is is literally a turning away. As I had an orientation towards wickedness and sin in the world, and now I am reorientating myself towards God, towards blamelessness, towards purity, in hope that one day I'll obtain it by the complete glorification. That when I was saved, I was saved from the penalty of my sin. Now I'm being saved from um, the, the ongoing uh, sinfulness of my heart. And one day I'll be completely saved of the presence of sin altogether. From the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and then the presence. I press on to make it my own. It's a reorientation. So what does that look like? This is a heart that now makes war against their sin. A heart that hates their sin and pursues holiness, pursues love, pursues obedience, and seeks to please the Lord in all we do, though imperfectly, and trusts Christ to be our perfect, sinless Savior for us. This is telling us what genuine Christian love leads to. It's a sanctifying work that makes us more and more like Christ until the day of his second coming, where he will complete our sanctification, complete our spiritual maturity by resurrecting us into our glorified bodies that will no longer be able to sin in any measure in his perfect and holy presence. This is the fulfillment of verse 6 from earlier in the chapter. Remember, and I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And verse 11. 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice that in case you got it twisted, in case you got it confused as whose, whose righteousness it is that saves us in the end, who is the perfect, who is the pure and, and blameless one, he goes on to say that purity and blamelessness that you now turn to and walk to is merely just a fruit, a result of a foreign righteousness from somebody else given to you. It's a fruit of righteousness that comes through your good work and how good of a Christian you can be? No. Righteousness that comes through abstaining from immorality and making sure you read your Bible every day and you live a modest life? No. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. And we grow in practical righteousness and holiness obedience that is rooted in love because he first loved us it is a fruit that springs from the garden of our hearts a new regenerated heart and i love that analogy it's throughout all the scriptures it was jesus's favorite analogy to describe his followers that they are plants of some sort whether a tree or or a, a vineyard producing fruit, and he is the root, he is the source. And what I love about this is you cannot get it confused if you really think about it. You cannot say that our fruit saves us, our works save us in any measure whatsoever, because in the same way that a, an oak tree does not try its hardest to grow apples in order to become an apple tree, no. A tree produces apples because it's already an apple tree. And in the same way, we produce fruit in our lives, not because we try to earn and become a Christian, but we produce the fruit of Jesus Christ in our lives because he has saved us and because we are a new creation, right? But the point is that that is real evidence and it's rooted in love. Our love to others is the fruit of Christ's labor, of his work and love in us. We are the trees, our love is the fruits, and his love is the roots. So Jesus takes the dead gardens of our hearts, replaces it with an entire new creation. We were bad tree, destined to be chopped down and thrown into the fire, but he changed us and gave us a new nature that can bear the fruit of Christian love in our hearts. But here's the point of all of this. Why? Why did he do any of this? Why does Christ care to, to show his love through unworthy vessels, unlovable vessels we are, that he loved us despite us and now loves the world through us? Why does he do this? Why does he choose to do it in the way that he does it? It's to the glory and praise of God. God gets all the glory in this way. He gets all the praise and he's all that matters. He deserves to be glorified. He deserves to seek his own praise and glory because he's the only one that's perfect. If we were perfect, then, then we would seek our own glory, but we're not. So when people, fallen sinful people like us seek their own glory, we call that arrogance. We call that pride. But it's not for Jesus Christ because he is the only perfect 
right? He's the only one all-deserving. For him not to seek his glory and his own praise would be to lying, a lying testimony to the world that he does not deserve it, but he does. And the reason why this way of sanctification brings him more glory is because when it's just growth and love because he's already loved us, then that shows that there's nothing we could do to earn it. That there's nothing we can do to say, God, here's my fruit. I rot myself. Therefore, let me into your kingdom. God, you are now my debtor. You owe me salvation because of how good I am. No. But if it's merely just fruit loving because he first loved us as a response to his love and grace, then he gets all the glory as our Savior. And not only that, but the fruit being love itself bears witness to the world and glorifies God that, that when we love others, it shows that our God is a loving God himself. The reason why we grow in spiritual maturity, abounding more and more in love that's knowledgeable and all discerning, is because it makes Jesus Christ look good. It makes him look loving. It magnifies him. Not magnifying him like a magnifying glass does, making something really small appear to be larger than it is, but like a telescope up in the sky showing these tiny little stars and magnifying them to give some blurry semblance to how big and beautiful and wondrous and majestic they truly are. In the same way, our lives and our love towards others magnifies God to show it just a semblance to the world of just how loving and good he is to us. So if he's loved us, why don't we love other people? What would it look like to walk in this love? What would it look like to love our neighbors? What would it look like to be willing to lay down our lives? Greater love have no than this, that man should lay down his life for his friends. Jesus loved us even to the point of death. What would it look like in our communities if we did this? How many people would come? And why wouldn't we love if we've been so loved? Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love, God.